Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the coming wave of attacks on abortion and the foundational concept of privacy more broadly that are making their way to the Supreme Court for likely rubber-stamping by at least five of the deeply conservative current justices. Undermining the established precedent of privacy that abortion rests on can and likely will have ramifications far beyond reproductive rights, and so we explain that today. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Program, Amicus with Dahlia Lithwick, and The Bradcast with additional members-only clips from All In with Chris Hayes, Past, Present, and Amicus. Republican senators have tried to portray Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown-Jackson as hostile to anti-abortion views. Republican Senator John Kennedy on Tuesday asked Judge Jackson when life begins. Part of the time flies. When, when, uh, when does life begin, in your opinion? Senator, um, I don't know. <laughs> Ma'am? I don't know. Do you have a belief? I have um, personal, religious, and otherwise beliefs that have nothing to do with the law in terms of when life begins. Do you you have a personal belief, though, about when life begins? I have a religious view. Religious belief? That I set aside when I am ruling on cases. So that was Senator Kennedy Tuesday. This is Republican Senator John Cornyn questioning Judge Brown Jackson on Wednesday. No one suggests that a 20-week-old fetus can live independently outside the mother's womb. Do they? I, I don't know. I mean, you need... The child will need to be fed, sheltered, and all the other essentials to sustain human life. Um, so there's no suggestion that after 20 weeks that a child can be live independently. Correct, Senator. I'm I'm not a biologist. I haven't studied this. I don't know. Um, you don't know what? whether a, an unborn child could live outside the womb at 20 weeks gestation. What I know is that the Supreme Court has um, tests and standards that it's applied when it evaluates regulation of the right of a woman to terminate their pregnancy. Um, They have a—the court has announced um, that there is a right to terminate uh, up to the point of viability subject to the— framework in Roe and Casey, and there's a pending case right now that is addressing these issues. At the same time as the hearing yesterday, Idaho became the first state to enact a law modeled on Texas's near-total ban on abortions. The Republican governor signed the bill Wednesday, which bans abortions after around six weeks of pregnancy and allows anyone biologically related to the fetus to sue abortion providers if they defy the law. The only exceptions are in case of medical emergency, rape or incest, but the latter two require the patient to have reported a crime to police. Also Wednesday, Oklahoma passed a total abortion ban that would be enforced by bounty hunter-style lawsuits. Um, Imani Gandhi, if you can talk about how Judge Jackson responded and how this is all happening as this wave of anti-abortion laws are passing across the country. I think Judge Jackson's response was perfectly appropriate. Um, There's no indication that she has ruled extensively on abortion rights cases. The Supreme Court itself declined to determine to to make an assessment as to when life begins, specifically declined to do that in Roe versus Wade. I think it's a bit absurd for these Republican senators to to imply that she is somehow hostile to anti-abortion views when the criteria for Republican nominated Um, potential Supreme Court justices is that they essentially vow that they will overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, certainly in the hearing room, they won't say something like that. Judge, you know, then Judge Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't say something like that. They'll say something like, it's not, it's not appropriate for me to opine on, on legal issues that are before the court right now, or it's not, it's not appropriate for me to opine on how I would rule in a hypothetical case. Because as we know, justices are, 
ostensibly beholden to precedent and beholden to the rule of law. But as we've seen over the last six months now, abortion rights don't fall within that framework of of constitutional rights that the Supreme Court feels that it has an obligation to uphold. Roe has been functionally void in Texas for going on six months. And as you mentioned, there are states that are falling like dominoes that are rushing to enact these bounty hunter style bills, which permit literally anyone in the world to snitch on someone who's either getting an abortion or, or who is helping someone get an abortion, abortion funds and the abortion access pipeline, clergy people, counselors, social workers, lawyers, all of these people are being entrapped by this bounty hunter system, and it is chilling constitutional rights. And the Supreme Court right now doesn't seem to care about that. And you can tell that it is, you know, very upsetting to someone like Sonia Sotomayor, who has written, I think, four dissents now, each increasingly more outraged than the other, because the Supreme Court is ignoring its own precedent. And it seems as if, for example, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Judge Edith Jones, during one of the hearings in the Fifth Circuit, basically said, well, shouldn't we just wait to see what the court does on Dobbs? And that's not the way that's not the way it works. No, you shouldn't wait to see what the court does on Dobbs, which is the Mississippi case challenging uh, Mississippi's 15 week uh, abortion ban. What you do is you uphold the law as it's written on the day that you're supposed to be hearing an issue. That means Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land. It may not be in two months. But it is now. So Judge Jackson's response was appropriate. And had she been a Republican nominated justice or judge, excuse me, Republicans would have been happy for her to say, I'm not going to opine because they know in their back pocket when it time when it comes time to decide Roe versus Wade, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch, all of these justices that Trump appointed who were required in advance to have anti-choice views. They're they're all fine. They're all sitting on the judge just waiting for their opportunity to essentially gut Roe versus Wade. And Dahlia, could you also respond to that and and the fact that you've said that that uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Democrats uh, did not connect the hearing to what's going to be a catastrophic series of progressive losses at the Supreme Court? Uh, talk about what other progressive losses, in addition to reproductive rights, uh, you're referring to. I think the single most important thing that I saw in the questioning around abortion was how little there was. And to the extent there was questioning around abortion, it presumed, uh, as you just heard, that abortion's already over, that Roe v. Wade has been nullified, and that was assumed. And then the questions really moved on to other things within that bucket of privacy rights and family autonomy rights, the sort of all the substantive due process, unenumerated rights. And the questions we were getting were really chilling. Uh, John Corman raising the prospect of maybe doing away with Obergefell, the marriage equality decision. Uh, all of the rights, including contraception in that bucket that are protected by Roe, I think are on the table now. And it's why you were hearing talk this week inside the chamber. You're hearing talk about maybe Griswold versus Connecticut, the right to contraception within a marriage. Maybe that uh, should be re revisited outside the chamber. We were hearing that maybe uh, 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 Loving versus Virginia, the right to have interracial marriage uh, also should be left to the states. So I think we need to be really clear that the target has moved. It is presumed that Roe is going to be reversed in a couple months, and I think that's fair, but also that everything that comes with it is now fair game. And yeah. that's why you're hearing about marriage equality. It's why you're hearing about birth control. Senator Marsha Blackburn uh, released a video statement over the last weekend in which she talked about, and I'm, I'm quoting from her, she said, Constitutionally unsound rulings like Griswold v. Connecticut confuse Tennesseans and leave Congress wondering who gave the court permission to bypass our system of checks and balances. Now, what's she talking about here in Griswold v. Connecticut? I, you know, I, I, there's actually a whole chapter devoted to this in my new book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, because this, it was the first case in the history of the United States where a right to privacy was identified in the Constitution explicitly by that name. 
1965. There were laws on the books that went back to the 1800s, and one in Connecticut specifically that went back to the 1880s or 1890s, that said it was illegal for anybody, including a married couple, to have any form of birth control in their home, to be in possession of birth control. Birth control was as illegal as drugs, right? You couldn't have birth control in Connecticut and in you know, multiple other states as well. And the people who were prosecuted for this were mostly single women, but occasionally even married couples. This was a married couple that brought the Griswold case, if my memory serves me right. And in that case, in a 7-2 to two ruling in 1965, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, we are looking at the first, third, fourth, fifth, and ninth amendments, and we find a right to privacy. And that right to privacy includes your own bedroom. The government can't kick in the door and see if you've got birth control. Now, they were talking about condoms and diaphragms back then. Well, they were also talking about the early birth control pill, which was legalized in 61. This was 65. They didn't legalize birth control for single people, by the way, in this decision in 1965. That came in a Supreme Court decision in 1972. So right up until 1972, in some states, including Connecticut, it was a crime for a single person to to possess any form of birth control, including a condom. So now Marsha Blackburn comes out and says she's going to oppose the nomination of Katanji Jackson, Brown Jackson, because Katanji Brown, Judge Jackson, refuses to say that Griswold was wrongly decided. In fact, Judge Jackson thinks that Griswold was correctly decided, that people should have the right to have birth control in their own home. Here you have one of the most influential Republicans in the United States Senate, a member, uh, a secondary member of Republican leadership. She is on the Judiciary Committee that will be interrogating, or is probably right now as we're speaking, interrogating Judge Jackson, saying that Tennesseans are confused and Congress is wondering who gave the court permission to bypass our system of checks and balances. In other words, The law against birth control was passed by Connecticut. Who the hell does the Supreme Court think they are overturning that law? That's the essence of Marsha Blackburn's statement. Now, where this gets really interesting, and by the way, this 1965 Griswold decision, being the first time the right to privacy was found in our Constitution, and the reason why, of course, is the word privacy doesn't exist in the Constitution, because in the 1770s, it referred to using the toilet, uh, which is why they're called privies. But nonetheless, this decision or this argument that Blackburn is making that Griswold should be reversed would end the right, the legal right to own birth control in the United States. Now, last summer, the Republican Study Committee issued a report titled, uh, or memo titled, Lean into the Culture War. And they said in this document, the Republican Study Committee, they they said, we are in a culture war and we are winning. Marsha Blackburn's statement that we should criminalize birth control in the United States is part of that Republican culture war. So my question to you is, how far can they go before we start saying, before before Republicans, before moderate voters, what would you call it, independent voters, in the middle voters, before they start saying, wait a minute. I mean, making it harder to vote, you know, you've got, you know, uh, down in Texas, as many as 30, 40 percent of voter applications are being turned down. In Florida, people are being stripped from the voting rolls. In Ohio, they even took it to the Supreme Court. May we please purge all these black people from the rolls in in Akron and Cleveland? The Supreme Court says, yes, you may. In a totally partisan, 100 percent Republican appointee decision. And... America hasn't freaked out. I mean, I I think African-Americans across the country are going, whoa. But by and large, white people in America are like, that's okay with us. So is this going to be the thing? I mean, they're going after trans kids. They're going after gay people. They're going after lesbians. I mean, at what what is it going to take for Americans to say, Republicans, you've gone too friggin' far. We now know, you know, the jig is up. We now know what the game is. 
The game is to put us into subjection. Uh, so, so, is to is to basically you know overwhelm America with right wing ideology to ban our books to shut down our schools. Enough already. want to start by just asking you if my initial framing is correct and that insofar as these confirmation hearings aren't just to achieve a confirmation but are kind of messaging wars about how you think about the constitution it's a mistake to say that going after unenumerated rights going after substantive due process is just wordplay, that there's a, a game here and the game is to roll back rights and rolling back those rights does not begin or end with abortion. Uh, I do think that's right. Conservatives, both on the court and in the conservative legal movement and in the Senate, want to roll back a century of constitutional jurisprudence that recognizes that the 14th Amendment broadly protects fundamental rights that are inherent in autonomy, dignity, and equal citizenship. And they're not limited to rights that are set forth in the four corners of the Constitution's text that comes directly out of the Constitution's text and history, and it's reflected in Supreme Court decisions going back over a century protecting rights to be a parent, rights to marry a loved one, rights to raise one's children according to one's values, rights to access contraceptives, rights to choose whether or not to have children, and including the rights to have an abortion. And from the point of view of conservatives, and we saw this repeatedly at Judge Jackson's hearings, these are all made up rights. Senator Kennedy sort of said, this is just policymaking. And that's really deeply wrong as a matter of the 14th Amendment. This conservative attack on unenumerated rights, this idea that if it's not written in the text, it can't be a fundamental right, is deeply problematic in many ways as a matter of the entire history of our Constitution. It goes back to debates at the founding over should there be a Bill of Rights? And one of the concern was, look, if you try and list all the rights that are protected, you're not going to get them all. There's a wonderful quote from James Iredell, who was a very prominent member of the founding generation, later served on the Supreme Court, that says, make whatever list you want. I'll immediately name 20 or 30 that aren't listed there. So there was this idea you can't capture everything. And the Ninth Amendment doesn't protect an enumerated rights, but it sort of sets out this rule of construction. Just because it's not listed doesn't mean it's not a protected right. And in the piece that you mentioned, what I talk about is two big influences at the time of the drafting of the 14th Amendment. And the first and most important is the Declaration of Independence, the Framers who write the 14th Amendment view the Declaration of Independence as the touchstone. This was the thing that was key to the American ideals of freedom of equality, and it was essentially buried because of slavery. And so the idea behind the 14th Amendment is to restore the Declaration. And they call the 14th Amendment the gem of the Constitution, and it's because it's going to write the Declaration into the Constitution. The Declaration speaks broadly of inalienable rights. It doesn't try and list what those rights are. The 14th Amendment does the same thing. It talks about privileges, immunities of citizenship. It talks about guaranteeing liberty without due process of law. It guarantees equal protection of the laws. It doesn't try and enumerate the rights that it sought to protect out of this recognition that no possible set of rights would be exhaustive. And in those debates, they look back to the Ninth Amendment and they say the Ninth Amendment completed the document. It ensured that all fundamental rights would be guaranteed. And there's a second point that gets to why the text and history protects unenumerated rights. Now, the 14th Amendment emerges out of the crucible of slavery and it defines the promise of freedom. It's trying to guarantee those fundamental rights that had been long denied to those held in bondage. And in the debates, they're looking back at what did it mean to be denied freedom, to be held in slavery. And many of those key rights were not rights that were enumerated in the Constitution. Many of them were, like freedom of speech, protection against unreasonable search and seizures were 
key to the Bill of Rights, but many of them weren't. And what were some of those rights? The right to marry. Slave people had no right to marry at all. Frederick Douglass says, this is a nation that boasts of liberty, but three million people have no right to marry. The right to start a family, choose who's in your family, that was all impossible under slavery. Children were treated as a commodity. They could be bought and sold. They could be separated. Parents had no right to care for their children. So these fundamental rights are very deeply rooted in the history of the 14th Amendment. After the slave trade closed, a key to the expansion of slavery was the idea that the slave system would replicate itself through forced procreation, through rape, through forced enslaved women to procreate with other slaves you know, as a matter of coercion and, and the violence inherent in that. And these were not kind of peripheral parts of slavery. These were viewed as kind of the core evil, and they were central to the abolitionist critique of slavery that that helped change the Constitution that led first to the 13th Amendment and then to the 14th Amendment. And you can sort of chart the progress of the idea that these are fundamental rights throughout these debates. When the 13th Amendment is debated, a number of the members of Congress during the debate sort of say, you know, under slavery, an enslaved person couldn't say, my home, my wife, my body. These were all fundamental rights, and they are fundamental because they had been denied under slavery. One of the things you see on the court today is conservatives take this view that we can't figure out what is a fundamental right unless it's listed. So the answer is, we're going to say, if it's in the text, it counts. Otherwise, it's not going to be protected or we'll devise a set of tests that are so onerous that no right will qualify as fundamental unless it's listed in the text. So I want to sort of back up. Part of the story goes back to the fact that kind of a very key piece of the 14th Amendment, which was the Privileges or Immunities Clause that says no state shall enforce a law that denies the privileges and immunities of citizens, that was essentially stripped out of the Constitution very early on in 1873, in a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, that kind of removed the language of the 14th Amendment that seems to very clearly protect substantive fundamental rights. And since then, many have pushed, both on the left and the right, for the court to restore that in line with its text and history. But the court has never done that. And instead, the Due Process Clause has done the work of protecting fundamental rights. And The response often from conservatives like Senator Cornyn is to sort of say, well, due process seems to be more about ensuring fair procedures, and it doesn't make sense to use it to protect fundamental rights from denial by the states. And so essentially what the court has done is to enforce the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, the guarantee of fundamental rights that are at its core, by using the Due Process Clause, because as late as 2010, a case called McDonald, there was a big push to use the Privileged Immunities Clause, which is the clause that the text and history says is the one that protects fundamental rights. And the response was, there's too much water under the bridge. We've used the Due Process Clause for over a century, and as a matter of precedent, Even though we get the force of history, we're going to continue with that approach. And so that is the approach that the entire court has used. In that case, Justice Scalia sort of said, you're going to be the darling of the professoriate for pushing privileges and immunities, but we're not going to do it. And now you see conservatives sort of turning around and saying, well, if we're focusing on due process, that seems like an odd way to protect substantive fundamental rights. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. 
Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. your specialty, you, you the whole issue of reproductive rights to continue on that point, but at the state level, because as all of this has been happening, I want to ask you about the near total ban on abortions that lawmakers in Oklahoma just voted to approve this week, um, the bill that would make it a felony to perform an abortion in most cases, punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine of $100,000. It doesn't contain exceptions for rape or incest. It comes after Texas enacted its total ban, near total ban on abortions. Nearly half of all patients who traveled out of state for their abortion went to Oklahoma. Oklahoma Republican Governor Kevin Stitt expected to sign the anti-abortion legislation has described himself as the country's most pro-life governor. Can you talk about this bill, which is expected to be signed into law, and the rash of other bills being passed in Republican-controlled states, not to mention what the Supreme Court is considering? These are horrific times for reproductive liberty, reproductive freedom, and they're chilling times in general for the rule of law. What we've seen is that the rule of law has been made scorched earth, and we've seen that through the Supreme Court and how it evaluated and allowed to go into effect Texas's SB8 law which has all of the kind of nostalgia of slavery age types of laws with its uh, bounty hunter provision, which is plucked right out of antebellum slavery with the Fugitive Slave Acts, uh, which were upheld by federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court. And if you think about it, Amy, and I hope to come back on your show where we really do some deep dive in this area, you'll see that some of what's being framed in this new era of legislating against abortion rights are being plucked from Jim Crow, are being plucked from the age of slavery. You'll see, for example, states going after people who help people via interstate, getting to another state to terminate a pregnancy. Well, that looks just like a page out of the white slavery laws, which were laws that were attempting to surveil black men with white women who were traveling to another state where they could be safe and have a healthy relationship, marriage, etc. What these laws seek to do is at the state level essentially undermine Roe v. Wade while Roe remains the law of the land. Roe v. Wade has not been overturned by the Supreme Court, but you see states engaged in a kind of behavior which is unprecedented and unfathomable. And I'll give you a quick example because I know that we have to go. But if you think about Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, 1954, And imagine that one year later, two years later, five years later, states like Louisiana and Oklahoma say, well, we don't have to abide by Brown. That was Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. We're Oklahoma. We're Missouri. We're Louisiana. We can segregate, and those laws don't apply to us. Well, that's the era that we are in right now, and this is why it's so dangerous. But I would say that anybody who's listening to us today, who are watching and who's concerned about reproductive health rights and justice, if you're concerned about that, you should also be concerned about voting rights, because the same people seeking to undermine reproductive freedom are also seeking to undermine uh, the freedom to be able to vote. And we see that in those same states. You know, I don't think they are paying attention, Mark. And you know, I've uh, and the reason I say is this: I, I've I've characterized the uh, KPJ 
confirmation hearings as stupid and ridiculous, and they were. You're, of course, welcome to disagree with me if you like. But, you know, for all of the distractions about Judge Jackson supposedly being soft on child porn users and terrorists, uh, both of which I should add are absurd charges. Uh, there was much more, there was a much more disturbing line of questioning that emerged that received much less attention, it seems to me, but one that actually deserves much more notice, at least, uh, you know, for those who believe in such conservative concepts as freedom and privacy from big government and constitutional rights. Kate Riga writes uh, on uh, Wednesday morning in a piece at TPM headlined, Loud and Proud Republicans Take Aim at Whole Constellation of Privacy Rights. Uh, she says, in public remarks, leading Republicans have almost casually and with little fear of political recrimination begun to relitigate same-sex marriage, contraception, and interracial marriage with a robust six to three conservative majority on the Supreme Court, the GOP's ambition to rework the privacy juris jurisprudence underlying many of the civil rights gains of the last 60 years isn't idle aspiration, but a very real threat. And she goes on to argue that uh, if Republicans retreated on gay marriage over the past uh, decade, it's only actually been seven years since the Obergefell decision. But if they did, it was only a tactical retreat. And she further cites lines of questioning that came up during Judge Jackson's hearings that seemed to eye 1965's Griswold v. Connecticut, establishing the right to privacy for adults to use contraception and even loving v. Virginia. The 1967 ruling allowing interracial marriage in all 50 states. Is Kate right in sounding those alarms that the right actually is eyeing not just Roe v. Wade, but uh, marriage equality, contraception, interracial marriage at this point? Kate is dead on. Um, and I wrote a piece about this myself that makes a similar argument. One of the most troubling lines of questioning came from Senator John Cornyn of Texas, and he really took direct aim at Obergefell, the marriage equality decision, mm -hmm. and made it very clear that he would like to see that decision overturned. And a number of other senators brought this up, too, and really um, kind of argued for the unraveling of the entire constitutional doctrine of um, substantive due process, also known as unenumerated fundamental rights, this idea that there are some rights really deeply rooted in history and tradition that the government can't take away, including the right to marriage, um, the right to intimacy, the right to raise a family. Um, and, and, you know, this has been an issue in this abortion case that's pending before the court right now, where it's, it's very difficult to understand how the court could overturn Roe versus Wade without dramatically undermining, if not also overturning, mm -hmm. all of these other decisions from marriage equality to contraception. And I just want to add one interesting footnote here. Yeah which is that if you go through and you read a lot of either the legislation or the lawsuits that have been filed by Republicans um, trying to promote uh, parental control over schools, parental control over education, trying to outlaw gender-affirming care for trans youth, trying to outlaw instruction on LGBTQ issues and people in the classroom, mm -hmm. it actually often rests on an unenumerated fundamental right derived from substantive due process, which is the right to raise one's children as one wishes. That is a heartland right, as we say in the law, mm -hmm. of substantive due process, and it is not mentioned in the Constitution. The word marriage, the word children, they are not in the Constitution. This is an idea that the Supreme Court has gleaned from the underlying values of the Constitution and from tradition. And so it is very, very odd to see Republicans uh, criticize this doctrine as it protects gay people and, and women and, and other couples and families, but then to turn around and try to deploy it uh, in their culture war quest um, to give parents an absolute right over their children's education, their children's upbringing, and say, well, this is rooted in the Constitution. You just can't have it both ways. Yeah, and they seem to be imagining a certain uh, ideas, rights into the Constitution on that level, and then on another level, like when it comes to Roe v. Wade, they're saying, well, there is no right uh, to an abortion in the Constitution. There is no right 
to privacy in the Constitution, as is uh, as Roe v. Wade is based on. And since they're getting ready to overturn Roe v. Wade, saying there is no right to privacy on which to base it, we have that right. And 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 help me understand this, uh, Mark. But doesn't that right sort of come out of decisions like Griswold v. Con- uh, Connecticut in 1965? Regarding uh, the use of contraception, where they developed this constitutional right to privacy, they established this, uh, and therefore all of these other cases. In other words, if they knock down Roe v. Wade on the idea that there is no right to privacy, then all of these other cases that are based on that can also fall next. Am I understanding it correctly? You are absolutely correct, and I'll add that the uh, drafter and, 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 like, sort of ringleader of the Texas abortion ban, the vigilante abortion ban, he filed a brief before the Supreme Court urging it to overturn Obergefell, the marriage equality decision, mm-hmm. and Loving versus Virginia, the mm-hmm. interracial marriage decision, after it overturns Roe. He said, you should leave these other decisions hanging by a thread and your decision overturning Roe, and then you should come back and just overturn them too, because they are just as invalid as Roe. And I, I, I think you're, you're basically right about all of these decisions being intimately connected to this right to privacy, but it actually goes back even further. There were several decisions in the early 20th century, just to return to my point, mm-hmm. that involved the right to raise children. So the right to send your children to private schools, the right to teach your children a foreign language. That really kind of kicked off this doctrine as we know it. But it's not just about privacy. It's also about a, a kind of fundamental liberty to engage in intimate relationships, to have children, to you know raise mm-hmm. your children as you see fit, or not to have children. And again, if you start untangling it, it all falls apart, including these bedrock decisions that are form the basis of parental rights under the Constitution. So, you know, we all know the Supreme Court can just gerrymander its decisions to disfavor liberal stuff and favor conservative stuff. Mm-hmm. But I would love to see conservatives engage with this a little bit more, more honestly, because they are sort of like putting their pet issue in line for execution by arguing for this entire constitutional doctrine to be overthrown. Mm. So actually this gets to, I guess, what I think is my tactic or strategy question, right? We have briefs in the Dobbs case that are already saying, hey, once you're going after substantive due process, let's just be really clear that Obergefell is also on very thin ice. And as you just suggested, you know, we've seen attacks from various states on Griswold. We've got, I think, all three of the attorney general candidates in Michigan saying there's no right to use contraception rooted in Griswold because there's no privacy right in Griswold that's real. So I think one of the reasons I wanted to have you on was, you know, I'm sure you had this conversation many times the week of the hearing, too, when you did media. But the answer to that that you get from the left is, oh, come on, nobody's going after contraception. Come on. You know, Americans firmly, firmly support marriage equality. There's no possibility that these are on the hook. And I think I have a two-part question for you. One is... Americans also support Roe. That's immaterial. <laughs> the fact that Americans may be robustly in favor of contraception and the right to contraception or marriage equality doesn't mean that they are necessarily secure constitutionally. But more importantly, doesn't it mean that seeding this ground around Roe just unerringly means that the court has reasons to to suggest that everything that followed Roe, including Lawrence versus Texas, including Obergefell, is similarly fair game? So one, I do think many of the arguments that are being made in Dobbs are arguments that, if accepted, would destroy much of the line of fundamental rights protections that are deeply rooted in the 14th Amendment. And so let me explain that. One of the arguments that Mississippi makes in Dobbs is the right to abortion can't be fundamental because 
we look at state practice in 1868 and abortion was outlawed. And so how can it possibly be a fundamental right? And that's the same argument that was made in Obergefell. Same-sex marriage wasn't allowed in 1868, so how can it be a fundamental right? Scalia's dissent in that case basically said that and said, that's the end. That's the case. Like, this is easy. There's no possible way this can be a matter of fundamental liberty. The problem is, that's also the argument against the fundamental rights holding and loving, which is viewed as one of those precedents that, you know, if your theory doesn't explain loving or brown, then that's a problem with your theory. In the piece, I sort of look at what Judge Roberts, then ultimately Chief Justice Roberts, said in his confirmation hearing where he said, looking to state practice to define the meaning of the limits on states is really circular. So you can't say it's constitutional because they've done it. The question is, is it constitutional? And he said, in Loving, the court looked at whether the right to marry was fundamental, and it recognized it was. I think the opinion didn't need to, but it could have rooted it in the fact that at the time of the 14th Amendment, the right to marry was celebrated by Black people as a core central part of their freedom. This was one of the fundamental denials that they couldn't have a family. A couple could always be sold away. So the right to marry was very fundamental. And so in Loving, the court said it's fundamental. The fact that states have prescribed it doesn't make it constitutional. And there's kind of a broader point, which is the whole point of the 14th Amendment was a response to decades and decades of suppression of fundamental rights. So the idea that you would just say, well, we're going to define what the 14th Amendment means by looking to what states did at the time kind of turns it on its head. This was the argument that then Justice Rehnquist made in Roe. It's been made, you know, in many different ways in other cases since. And it's sort of a theory that's used to ensure that this entire line of cases would come out the other way. And you can even look at Griswold. That was a law that was passed in 1879. So if you're looking at the age of state practice, there would be a strong argument that restrictions on contraception would be fine. And the other side says we're doing originalism, but as a matter of originalism, it's perverted. School segregation laws were on the books. All sorts of, of denials of fundamental rights and discriminations existed at the time of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment wasn't trying to lock those in. It didn't enact a list of results. It enacted these fundamental principles that fundamental rights would be respected, equality under the law, equal citizenship stature. These are kind of the fundamental points. So, so what you're saying is that when John Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, accuses uh, liberal justices of picking and choosing which unenumerated rights are fundamental, they're also picking and choosing which rights at the time of the 14th Amendment they think are the ones that are enshrined for all time and which can go to, so that there's picking and choosing going in both directions. It's not really a matter of picking and choosing. If you look at the history the rights that we're fighting about, the right to marry a loved one, was viewed as fundamental. The question now is, can you discriminate as to who gets to marry? And then you have both the force of the Constitution's guarantee of fundamental rights and its protection of equality that I think strongly supports what the court did in Loving, what the court did in Obergefell, and other cases. So the rights that are viewed as invented are, in fact, have a very strong foundation in the 14th Amendment and in the rights that had long been denied to enslaved persons. And if you start with that extremely strong foundation, it protects the rights that are at issue. I admit there wasn't any discussion at the time of the 14th Amendment of abortion, but once you recognize bodily integrity, the right to choose your family, the right to decide whether to bear and raise children, there's no daylight between those rights that are deeply rooted and the right to abortion.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing how the questioning of Judge Jackson telegraphed the anti-privacy legislative strategy headed for the Supreme Court. The Tom Hartman program highlighted Marsha Blackburn taking aim at privacy as well. Amicus spoke with David Gans, who broke down various constitutional amendments and the importance of unenumerated rights. Democracy Now! drew parallels between the current rash of oppressive laws and the eras of slavery and Jim Crow. The broadcast spoke with Mark Joseph Stern about how conservatives are attempting to have it both ways on privacy arguments, and Amicus discussed the defining of fundamental rights. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from All In with Chris Hayes, which highlighted the case of the GOP Tennessee state legislature working on a marriage bill that would incidentally, accidentally legalize child brides, all while accusing Democrats of pedophilia. All this bill does is give an alternative form of marriage for those pastors and other individuals who have a conscientious objection to the current pathway to marriage. Is there no age limit in this bill? Well, no, there is not an explicit um, age limit. Then, past-present reframed anti-abortion, anti-marriage equality laws through the lens of reinforcing the conservative conception of patriarchy. I think that there, it's almost kind of a, a reinforcing of a heterosexual patriarchal dynamic to put these two things together, to say, first of all, the only real marriage is between a man and a woman, and the man kind of gets to control at what age a woman enters into that relationship, or her parents get to control what age she enters into that relationship. And Amicus discussed the idea of fetal personhood through the lens of the history of controlling women's bodies. From the founding through the mid-19th century, it wasn't viewed as a compelling state interest. And when states moved to ban abortions, it was based on these gendered and racist views that said it was a woman's duty to give birth, and anything that interfered with that would bring ruin on the nation. And That's not the stuff that compelling state interests are made of. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now I just want to wrap up with a quick reminder and then a quick announcement. First is the reminder is, is that I've been putting out a call for general recommendations of interesting stuff that you've been seeing or hearing in pretty much any medium, podcast episodes, videos, documentaries, books, whatever. I want to know about it. If you're a member of the show and are in our Discord community, you can add your recommendations there directly and see what others have been suggesting as well. But for everyone else, please feel free to tweet at us or email me your recommendations and they will go in the pot. The whole idea is that the more of these sorts of recommendations they get tossed around, the more interesting ideas begin to formulate and those can translate into interesting discussions or interesting show topics. So that seems like a win-win-win all the way around. You could be a part of interesting conversations that are happening or just be the beneficiary of interesting podcast episodes. Next up, this is sort of an announcement, but, uh, well, you'll see. So episode 1500 is quickly bearing down on us, should be coming out in a couple of months or so, and it, it would basically be podcast malpractice to not make a big deal out of that. And so I have a tentative idea of what I may do on that episode. Of course, I'm open to other ideas if someone has a better better thought. But the tentative idea is to make sort of a, I've been at this for more than 15 years and now 1,500 episodes. What have I learned? And to try to do sort of a whole show on really major, big ideas, sort of foundational tentpole lessons that have really stuck out over the last couple of decades. And so, of course, you know, ever since yesterday, when I had this idea, I've been making a a sort of growing list of these kinds of ideas that I I would want to formulate into an episode. But I'm also putting the question out to you. If you have things that you have learned, big thoughts that you have had, 
you know, as you look back on the last 10 to 20 years of American politics, you know, what sticks out to you as a foundational lesson, like something you really need to know to understand politics as you see it. And don't be shy. If you don't want your comments to be played on the show, then just mention that in your email or voicemail. And don't hesitate because you think that the idea you would put forward is too common. You know, well, someone else will already say that. I won't need to say that. No, no, go, go ahead and toss that in. That'll be interesting, too, because if lots of people end up saying the same thing, then that gives it more weight, uh, particularly if it's something I might not have come up with myself. So if you have any big ideas, big lessons learned from the past couple decades, or, you know, I mean, for, for us old timers, you know, you could have learned an important lesson more than two decades ago, and it still holds true. So all the more important. It's just for me, I probably would have only learned it in the last couple decades. So if you have any thoughts on anything like that, uh, please send them in. As always, you can uh, leave comments at 202-999-3991 or send an email to me at j at bestoftheleft.com. Or honestly, if you have a better idea of what I should do with a 1500th episode, let me know that too, because I'm flexible. I'm open to ideas. Now, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofaleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.